Let's breathe in and breathe out. We're about to get into an Imani state of mind. I'm Dr. Imani Walker. I've been practicing as a psychiatrist for over 10 years. I know that so many of y'all don't know where to start when you want to talk about your mental health. On Imani State of Mind, I'm going to have those conversations with you. Imani State of Mind is out now. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Are you a woman over 40? Do you believe that this is both the very best and the very worst time of your life? Are you looking to find the humor in being this age and some insight into what it all means? Then check out Everything is Fine, a new podcast for women on the other side of 39. Hosted by Lucky Magazine founding editor Kim France and podcaster Tally Abacassis, each episode digs deep into the identity shift that comes with navigating what can be an alternately weird and liberating stage of life. A chat show with interview guests from the media and entertainment worlds, Kim and Tally combine fun subjects like fashion over 40 and beauty tips with big subjects like menopause and anger. It's a great listen, empathetic, insightful, and most of all, entertaining. So subscribe to Everything is Fine wherever you listen to podcasts. You must a kiss is just a kiss, a smile of Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. This season, we're going to tell 16 new stories about the Hollywood blacklist— that's the term we use for the era when hundreds of actors, writers, directors, and other artisans in the film industry were fired, denied employment, exiled from their communities, forced to leave the country in order to make a living, and in some cases even jailed due to the perception that these individuals had ties to communism. Some of those put on the blacklist or the gray list, which was the popular term for people who weren't officially blacklisted, who hadn't been called to testify before Congress, but who couldn't find work anyway, had no significant ties to the Communist Party at all. Some were victims of mistaken identity. Some had joined the Communist Party during the 1930s, when much of the country swung to the left in response to the economic devastation of the Great Depression. Others were drawn to the party, or other activist groups perceived to have party ties, due to their concerns over the spread of fascism in Europe in the 1930s and early 1940s, before and shortly after the dawn of World War II. After World War II, when the Soviet Union quickly transformed from America's wartime allies into the potential instigators and enemies in a new war, Pretty much any American who had opposed fascism before the U.S.'s entry into World War II was recast 
as prematurely anti-fascist and presumed to be in league with communists. With America increasingly paranoid that it and the Soviet Union were destined to demolish one another through nuclear war, anyone who had connections to communism was seen by some as a potential threat to national security. The blacklist happens at a moment of crisis, both for the nation and for the entertainment industry. America in the late 1940s and 1950s was sunshine on the surface, terror underneath, with the exhilaration of winning World War II and the confirmation of the nation as a major world power, combined with the reality of atomic weapons and the fear of future war. In Hollywood, business boomed during the war, but almost immediately fell off. Box office receipts fell sharply in 1946, and the reality of this movie land depression must have seemed harsher in early 1947, when headlines describing Hollywood's losses butted up against those describing Hollywood's most notorious and still unsolved murder, that of Elizabeth Short, a.k.a. the Black Dahlia. Meanwhile, the specter of television loomed. While Americans in power made sure the populace knew of, and was terrified of, the threat of outsiders, when it came to television, much of the movie industry took the opposite tack, pretending it didn't exist for as long as it could. They could not take this tactic when it came to the next threat to their survival, the 1948 monopoly-busting consent decrees, which mandated that the studios give up ownership of the movie theaters to which they fed product. But the industry was not allowed to pretend like they were immune to the threats being trumpeted as existential for Americans and their capitalist way of life. It was virtually impossible to be alive in America in the late 1940s and early 1950s and not be afraid, or at least aware that people all around you were afraid, that Russia could at any moment destroy life as you knew it with an atomic bomb. As it turned out, war was imminent with communists first in Korea and then Vietnam. But these conflicts turned out not to be the apocalyptic zero-sum games predicted by post-World War II nuclear panic propaganda. Perhaps more troubling, they caused many Americans to really think about their national identity. What we see when we look at the whole picture of the era, from the 1930s through the 1960s, is that the blacklist and what is broadly known as the McCarthy era— was perhaps the necessary cyclical cultural convulsion between World War II, a conflict that Hollywood happily helped fight alongside the Soviet state, and Vietnam, a quagmire fought in the name of anti-communism, whose divisive effect on the nation was mirrored, literally and figuratively, by the new Hollywood of the late 1960s and 70s. The blacklist gave the younger generation that much more ammunition against the dinosaurs of the old, golden era of Hollywood, and the crumbling remains of the studio system in which filmmakers like Warren Beatty and Robert Altman were making a new and newly sociopolitically engaged American cinema. This new generation embraced formerly blacklisted writers. Ring Lardner Jr., one of the Hollywood Ten, won an Oscar for writing Altman's M.A.S.H., And Waldo Salt, also blacklisted, wrote and won his own Oscars for Midnight Cowboy and Coming Home. But of course, the so-called New Hollywood was itself a transitional era. The politicized films of the Altmans, Beatty's, Coppola's, and Hal Ashby's gave way to the modern blockbuster, and a shift, inadvertent or otherwise, 
away from the personal, often uncomfortably honest and adult filmmaking that had revitalized the medium. It's not an accident that the often lefty, hippie-to-Watergate-era cinema started to fade into a new, more commercial and corporatized Hollywood filmmaking as political priorities evolved. This transition happens more or less in concert with the election of President Ronald Reagan, who as an actor, the leader of the Screen Actors Guild, and an FBI informant, helped support the blacklisting of his colleagues. This is all what happened because of the blacklist. Today, we're going to talk about what had to happen before the blacklist, in order for the blacklist to happen. Join us, won't you? For the first chapter of our new series, The Blacklist. Are you a member of the Communist Party? Or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? If a person consistently reads and advocates the views expressed in a communist publication, he may be a communist. And like an epidemic, a quarantine is necessary to keep it from infecting this nation. If I had my way about it, they'd all be sent back to Russia. Hollywood is, of course, a great example of American capitalism in that it's an industry built from the ground up by entrepreneurs whose early profits were reincorporated back into their businesses to foster growth, whose successes begat more success, and whose competition with one another forced everyone involved to grow, innovate, and in some cases, work together to protect the industry by keeping outsiders on the outside. So how could the U.S. government ever have become concerned that the film industry was controlled by communists, when over the course of its existence, the one constant truth about the film industry is that the grand majority of its actions were driven by a desire to make money? The answer to that question begins during the Great Depression. Hollywood did okay during the Depression. Studios used the nationwide financial crisis as an excuse to cut wages, but not all of them needed to. At MGM, for instance, the money saved went to increase executive bonuses. It was just that kind of unfair play that soured some Hollywood workers on the very idea of capitalism. A lot of people in the 1930s looked around them and saw a financial system that had failed, and problems like mass unemployment and poverty and equality. And since nothing else was really working, they started exploring the idea of radical solutions to these problems. At the same time, by the mid-1930s, Hollywood's many émigrés and second-generation citizens of European descent, many of them Jews, began to become aware of Hitler's anti-Semitism. Others were inspired by the Spanish Civil War. Fear of the spread of fascism led some to explore communism. A pervasive idea about the blacklist seems to be that its victims were persecuted and punished despite little to no evidence that they were actually communists. This was true in many cases, and some people who were blacklisted were not and had never been members of the Communist Party. There were people who were denied their livelihoods, and thus happy lives, for reasons that were stupid or petty or for virtually no reason at all. But there were also dedicated communists in Hollywood. They weren't necessarily revolutionary communists. Just because you were a member of the Communist Party, that didn't mean that you wanted to violently overthrow the government or to pass state secrets to the Soviets. 
It didn't mean that you were going to deny the sizable salary offered to you by a studio or not use the money to buy a nice house and car. Most Hollywood communists were concerned with domestic social issues, like racial inequality. They hoped the party could someday compete alongside the Democrat and Republican parties for a real voice in the shaping of the nation. And as both the party and the U.S. media changed their rhetoric during the period in which the U.S. and the USSR were allies, it looked like a time of American acceptance of domestic communism might not be far off. Circa 1944, the Communist Party of the USA billed itself in its constitution as, quote, a political party carrying forward the traditions of Jefferson, Payne, Jackson, and Lincoln through a government of the people, by the people, and for the people, its abolition of all exploitation of man by man, nation by nation, and race by race, striving toward a world without oppression and war, a world of brotherhood of man. When you read the memoirs of Hollywood people who are blacklisted, who admit an association with the party, the thing that comes up over and over again is that if you were concerned about inequality and systematic oppression abroad and at home, the communists were the only people who seemed to be committed to doing anything. As the numbers of movie folk attending Los Angeles-area communist party meetings began to swell— the Communist Party itself took notice. Though the percentage of movie workers drawn into the party remained small, members associated with the film industry tended to donate more money than workers in other industries. A party organizer named Stanley Lawrence referred to the new Hollywood recruits as, quote, fat cows to be milked. How many cows were there? The conservative point of view, then and even today, holds that even if the membership in the party was small, communists managed to infiltrate and seize a disproportionate amount of power, particularly within certain guilds and unions. The counter-argument to this is that if there was a communist conspiracy to infiltrate Hollywood, the communists were stupid in the way they went about it, because of all the different types of Hollywood craftsmen they could have recruited— they basically got nowhere with the really powerful people, the producers, and instead made a big impact with the least powerful people in town, the writers. That said, a number of screenwriters associated with the party did take an active role in the formation and governance of the Screenwriters Guild. But this was a small victory, because that guild was plagued by infighting from its inception, and the known or suspected communists who had power in the guild were opposed by a sizable faction of anti-communists. The most committed communist activist in town was John Howard Lawson, writer of the Hedy Lamar vehicle Algiers, the Bogart war flick Sahara, and as of 1937, the president of the Hollywood chapter of the Communist Party. Lawson strictly espoused the party line, no matter how that line changed, and he seems to have been the most aggressive and unyielding soldier fighting to inject American movies with leftist ideology. Less doctrinaire than Lawson were passionate believers like screenwriters Paul Jericho, Ben Barsman, and Michael Wilson, an Oscar winner for A Place in the Sun, a film which managed to be both class-conscious and totally decadent in the best classical Hollywood fashion, as well as Screen Readers Guild president Bernard Gordon. Barsman spoke for many when he described the party as, "...just the best, most organized way I know to fight fascism and imperial war and to aid the colonial peoples in their struggle for freedom." 
Barsman and friends had heard stories of the dark side of Joseph Stalin's rule, stories about mass arrests, show trials, and executions, but they weren't sure what to believe. Or they didn't believe. Those stories were probably just Western propaganda from a capitalist press, many thought. For others, communism was a faddish thing, something to check out once or twice, to casually ascribe to until the ever-changing party line crossed a line and began to rub them the wrong way. The Communist Party was supposedly a secret organization. Barsman told his future wife Norma in the early 1940s that if anyone found out he was active in the party, that would be the end of his career working for studios. And many, including director Edward Dimitrik, registered under aliases. There were some records kept of who joined or gave money to the party and of who attended meetings, and the FBI seized many of these records by breaking into the CP's Hollywood headquarters on several occasions. But there were not records kept of who left the party in disillusionment or disgust, or who attended a handful of meetings but never fully committed. The shades of red were made more blurry in 1934, when the Soviet Union established the Popular Front, which called for all leftists and anti-fascists to join forces to combat fascism. Previously, communists had been trained to shun non-communist leftists, who were branded as capitalists in pinkish clothing. But now virtually anyone opposed to Nazism or fascism was given the Soviet seal of approval and this would later give Red Hunters license to attack many non-communists who had nonetheless once been associated with a group that fell under the rubric of the Popular Front. Some of those progressives were none too happy to be associated with communists even at the time, especially after the temporary Hitler-Stalin Pact of 1939. But by early 1943, few could deny that Stalin was, as Bernard Gordon put it, heading the most ferocious, bloody, and heroic fight against Hitler. The threat of Nazism had been a mobilizing force for Hollywood leftists for the better part of the decade. Hollywood, of course, was a town peopled with refugees. There were New Yorkers like Nathaniel West and Dorothy Parker, who had come to make a quick buck as writers, and there was a host of Europeans in exile who were anti-fascists because they had had their lives threatened by fascism. In 1936, a number of Hollywood workers, including Dorothy Parker and Oscar Hammerstein, had banded together to form the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League. They were ahead of the times, and dangerously so. Most of their peers and colleagues and bosses were not ready to turn their backs on as rich a source of revenue as Nazi Germany, or other nations that would eventually become the U.S.'s fascist enemies. It was well known that Columbia chief Harry Cohn idolized Mussolini, and Mussolini's son Vittorio came to Hollywood in 1937 and was feted at a reception attended by, amongst others, Walt Disney and Gary Cooper. The first attack on Hollywood leftists came from Martin Dyes, a Texas congressman described by the New Republic as cocksure, who first came to Los Angeles to investigate communism in the movie industry in 1938. Dyes apparently was hoping to smear and conquer the New Deal, and as such, he first turned his attention to the WPA theater program, which he helped shut down. Then, in an editorial for Liberty magazine published in February 1940, Dyes accused, quote, 
42 or 43 unnamed but prominent members of the Hollywood film colony of being either, quote, full-fledged members of the Communist Party or active sympathizers and fellow travelers. Dyes apparently got his intel from John Leach, a former Communist Party organizer who gave Dyes a list of 42 Hollywood people who he claimed were involved with the party. Using Leach's intel as guidance, Dyes held closed-door hearings in L.A. and New York in 1940. Some members of the film colony pledged their cooperation with the congressman. Others loudly protested. Dyes interviewed some of the bold-faced names who had been named by Leach, including Humphrey Bogart and Jimmy Cagney, and he concluded that there was no threat in Tinseltown. The celebrities, Dyes concluded, quote, are not or never have been communist sympathizers. Hollywood on the whole, and its leftists in particular, assumed that they had dodged the bullet, and that that was that. Dyes was barking up the wrong trees, but he wasn't the only dog sniffing around. One thing to remember is that before Pearl Harbor, Americans weren't supposed to be concerned with what was going on in Europe. The only political party that made anti-fascism part of their agenda was the Communist Party, and Russia weren't allies yet. So to express anti-Nazi or anti-fascist sentiment was to mark oneself as a communist. It was more common and more accepted to be against the U.S.'s involvement in another costly war, and there were isolationists on both sides of the aisle in Congress. A number of congressmen attacked Hollywood for allegedly producing propaganda designed to soften the American populace's attitude toward entering the war. Senator Burden Wheeler, a Democrat from Montana who had once been conspicuously lefty and union-minded, broke with President Roosevelt and made himself a champion of the America First Committee, a powerful nationwide anti-interventionist group, which also included Walt Disney and Charles Lindbergh. Wheeler was head of the Senate Interstate Commerce Commission, which also included Republican Gerald Nye and Democrat Bennett Clark. Wheeler announced in 1941 that he intended to investigate the studios, which he pointed out were run primarily by foreign-born Jews. Why were a bunch of foreigners being allowed to influence American opinion? Wheeler asked, via what he called, quote, a violent propaganda campaign intending to incite the American people to the point where they will become involved in this war. Nye and Clark introduced a bill against war propaganda. Nye spoke out against Hollywood's hiring of filmmakers who had fled Nazism, cited a wide variety of films from The Great Dictator to Sergeant York as potentially dangerous pieces of propaganda, and finally warned that the Jews were using movies to, quote, fan race hatred across the nation. Hearings were held. Nick Skank, Harry Warner, and Daryl Zanuck were among the bigwigs who testified. And then Pearl Harbor happened, and everything changed. For the next few years, the government would be putting pressure on the studios to make war propaganda that was way more blatant than most of what Wheeler and friends had attacked. Not only that, but Hollywood was put on the case of normalizing American opinion when it came to our new allies in the war against Germany, the Soviet Union. This is not to say that Hollywood suddenly became the commie paradise that anti-communists had and would later allege that it had always been. Many films made for the war effort were creatively compromised by the fact that they had essentially been commissioned by the government. 
Jack Warner claimed that President Roosevelt himself had begged him to make the film Mission to Moscow, based on a book written by the U.S. ambassador to Russia, Joseph Davies. The U.S. needed their allies, led by Stalin, to wage war on the Eastern Front, and the idea was to make a big Hollywood movie to show the Russians that the Americans loved them and valued their partnership. Warner put Howard Koch and Michael Curtiz, writer and director of Casablanca, on the case. The week Mission to Moscow had gone into production, Joseph Stalin was named Time Magazine's Man of the Year. The magazine, which noted that, quote, Stalin drank his vodka straight and talked the same way, lauded the despot for defending his territory from Nazi invasion and for having, quote, fought the best fight so far of all of the Allies. Time also noted the noble sacrifice of the Russian people, for whom, quote, there was no smoked salmon, no pickled herring, no goose, no vodka, no coffee for the grown-ups. But there was rejoicing. Mission to Moscow got terrible reviews from political critics and film critics, and most of those involved with the film would live to regret it. But there were leftists who found in wartime ways to incorporate progressive ideas into patriotic fare. As Ben Barsman put it, We influence producers to make pictures about real people, about women. We keep out the step-and-fetch-it characters. Movies are less bad because of us. Perhaps the ultimate example of a movie made by Hollywood communists in Hollywood about real people and women was Tender Comrade, a 1943 film about four women working at an aerospace factory who rent a house together while their husbands are away at war. The film was written by Dalton Trumbo and directed by Edward Dimitrik, both of whom would at one point register with the Communist Party, and both of whom were later blacklisted. Tender Comrade starred Ginger Rogers, who was at the time the highest paid actress in Hollywood, as well as one of the most conservative, a devout Christian scientist and politically active Republican. She had also won an Oscar in 1940 for the Trumbo-scripted Kitty Foyle. Tender Comrade falls into some sentimental traps, but it's progressive in just depicting a world of women surviving without men, and it contains some truly rousing and inspirational images of women at Rosie the Riveter-like work, smiling and capable and not at all masculine in their machinist garb of aprons and blouses. It made money during the war, although not as much as Dimitri's other wartime propaganda film of 1943, Hitler's Children, but Tender Comrade became famous after the war for allegedly recommending collective living. This is the most infamous passage of the film. We could take a vote. We could run the joint like a democracy. And if anything comes up, we'll just call a meeting. Oh, gee, kids, that'd be wonderful. Well, for instance, now the four of us here have two cars, two sets of tires wearing out. We could sell one car and use the other on a share-and-share-alike basis. And we could... Oh, we could just do lots of things. How about it, kids? Let's take a vote on it right now, okay? Everybody in favor, say aye. 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 What about you, Barbara? Hmm? Well, say aye. Aye. The motion is carried unanimously. After the war, the idea of young wives voluntarily divesting of consumer goods like cars in order to share and share alike seemed downright Soviet, and thus anathema although the truly Stalin-esque moment of the scene is when Ginger tells her one girlfriend, 
how to vote. Dalton Trumbo would later all but disown Tender Comrade, but not before both Ginger Rogers and her mother, Leela Rogers, used the film to defame him. In a closed session with Senate investigators leading up to the HUAC hearings of 1947, Leela Rogers claimed that her daughter had refused to speak some of Trumbo's dialogue on the grounds that it was left-wing propaganda. For her part in her heavily filtered 1991 autobiography, Rogers wrote, quote, To my great surprise, some of Dalton Trumbo's dialogue had a communistic turn, which upset me deeply. I complained to the front office and sent notices to those in authority, including director Edward Dimitrik, that they would have to make a finer sifting of this script if they wanted me to continue with the film. In order to satisfy me, David Hempstead, the producer, gave the other actors the dialogue, share and share alike, that I was unhappy about. I still hold strong feelings against communism because it is atheistic and anti-God. Maybe Rogers really did make these requests while the film was in production. But as you just heard, she still says the line, share and share alike, in the finished film. Rogers' face-saving revisionism is of a piece with the way the culture turned after the war. Tender Comrade is one of several films that embody the political evolution that made the blacklist happen. Encouraged as patriotic American propaganda during the war, the film was recast as problematically anti-capitalist after the war, and its makers branded with the epithet, prematurely anti-fascist. There are some reports that Leela Rogers was so enraged by the communist dialogue her daughter had been asked to read in Tender Comrade that she tipped the FBI off to Trumbo's communist activities. This is possible, but the FBI probably didn't need Ginger Rogers' mother to tell them much. It's much more likely that Leela Rogers had an impact on inspiring the HUAC hearings via her activism in the Motion Picture Alliance for the Preservation of American Ideals, which is usually shortened to MPA, but since I'm speaking aloud, I'm going to call it the Alliance, in order to avoid confusion between it and the MPAA, or Motion Picture Association of America, the consortium of studios which, though independent from the Alliance, acted with the Alliance's encouragement to make the blacklist happen. Anyway... The Alliance was a group formed by director Sam Wood in 1944 with the express purpose of uniting Hollywood's right wing into a lobbying force in order to root out dangerous leftists and expel them from the industry. Wood, who had directed a revisionist adaptation of Hemingway's For Whom the Bell Tolls that had enraged leftists, formed the group in February 1944. He was joined at the start by Clark Gable, Barbara Stanwyck and her husband Robert Taylor, Gary Cooper, Walt Disney, John Ford, Irene Dunn, and John Wayne. They would have regular meetings at the American Legion Hall, and they started lobbying HUAC to investigate their industry. Wood was so obsessed that he started keeping a notebook in which he recorded the names of Hollywood people who he suspected were subversives. In 1949, after an alliance meeting, Sam Wood had a heart attack and died. His will stipulated that all of his heirs, with the exception of his wife, must file an affidavit with a probate court declaring that they, quote, are not now, nor have they ever been, communists. 
Some of the most powerful members of the alliance were studio moguls who had felt burned by their interactions with unions. The men who ran Hollywood studios on behalf of the New York entities who funded them mostly managed to stave off union organization until the Depression. The exception was IATSE, the International Alliance of Theatrical and Stage Employees, which was allowed to move in to represent some factions of below-the-line workers. Screenwriters were historically a disorganized lot. Their first attempt to organize began in a meeting in 1933 at the Knickerbocker Hotel, attended by, amongst others, Lester Cole and John Howard Lawson, who was named president of the nascent guild that night. The studios refused to negotiate with the writers, and through intimidation and unofficial blacklisting, they managed to deplete the ranks of the new union and inspire many members to form and then join a splinter group turned competitive writers' union, the existence of which compromised both groups' ability to negotiate. Within a couple of months of its founding, the Screenwriters' Guild was forced to admit defeat. Incoming dues had dropped to the point that they couldn't pay rent on their office space. But they continued to meet in private homes of members, including Dorothy Parker, Dashiell Hammett, and Lillian Hellman. Studio representatives and writers' representatives finally sat down together at the Brown Derby in May 1941 to hash out a contract. When Guild President Sheridan Gibney argued for a fair minimum wage of $120 a week, Jack Warner of Warner Brothers stood up and started yelling. They want to take my goddamn studio. My brothers built this studio. I came here from Europe. My father... Werner had been speaking to his fellow studio heads, but now he turned to direct his ire toward the writers. That's all you want, you goddamn communist bastards. You dirty sons of bitches. All you'll get from me is shit. Werner had to be physically removed from the restaurant, dragged out by Y. Frank Freeman of Paramount and Eddie Mannix of MGM. But this was nothing compared to the all-out Union War, which began in 1941, after a scandal which revealed endemic corruption in the film industry. Willie Beoff, a gangster from Chicago, arrived in Los Angeles in the 1930s to serve as the muscle for a guy named George Brown, who eventually came to lead IATSE, the union which counted amongst its varied members the projectionists who ran films and theaters. Beoff approached Nicholas Skank, the head of MGM's corporate parent Lowe's, and threatened to send the projectionists on strike, closing every movie theater in the country, unless he and Brown got a major kickback from the studios. So the studios got together and agreed to each pay a share of the million-dollar extortion demand. Bioff was a good soldier for the studios, and he continued to be compensated accordingly. When he used his power over Yahtzee to break up a strike instigated by a smaller, rival collective called the Federation of Motion Picture Craft in 1937, Joseph Skank, brother of Nick Skank and president of 20th Century Fox, wrote Bioff a personal check for $100,000. This payoff threatened to become public knowledge thanks to Jeff Kibber, who headed the FMPC and thus found his own attempt to fight for better pay for his workers thwarted by the stranglehold over the studios held by Bioff, Brown, and Iatsi. Jeff Kibber was a member of the Communist Party, but reports vary as to how committed he was and whether or not he was acting on party orders. 
Reports do not vary on the fact that Kibber blew the whistle on Bioff and Brown by filing a complaint with the National Labor Relations Board, alleging that Skank's $100,000 check was meant to ensure that Bioff would put a stop to Kibber's association's attempts to collectively bargain. This seems to have blown over relatively easily. All the Labor Relations Board did was demand a Hollywood-wide election to decide which union would represent the studio workers, and Iazzi won that election by a landslide. Bioff set his sights on total Hollywood domination and started trying to woo actors into joining his racket. But then the Screen Actors Guild, established in 1933, decided to investigate Bioff, and when SAG discovered the $100,000 payment from Skank, they publicized it. In January 1940, the Internal Revenue Service indicted Bioff for tax evasion. Six months later, Joe Skank was indicted for tax fraud and perjury. Skank was put on trial in March 1941 and sentenced to three years in prison. He agreed to a shorter sentence in exchange for information that helped secure a 10-year prison sentence for Bioff. Bioff, in turn, ratted out the entire structure of the Chicago Mafia in order to avoid prison time. He was killed in a car bomb in 1955. Skank served a year in prison and then returned to Hollywood, where he would go on to sugar daddy, a young Marilyn Monroe. But back to 1941. In the wake of the Yahtzee scandal, a new union of studio workers was formed called the Conference of Studio Unions, led by Herb Sorrell. The CSU set itself up as the clean alternative to Yahtzee, it was also the openly leftist alternative, and charges that it was controlled by communists were given credence in 1945, when four factions of the CSU refused to support a set decorator strike in keeping with the Communist Party's wartime no-strike pledge. But in May 1945, the Communist Party reversed its stance on strikes, and the Hollywood communists who had been scabs against the strike now joined with the rest of CSU in support of the strike. The studios were determined to stop the CSU, not because of their leftist politics, but because they could not be bought off as easily as Yahtzee, and thus their collective bargaining and willingness to stand up for their rights could actually have a negative impact on the studios. Yahtzee sent their workers to cross picket lines, and the studio fired all the striking set decorators rather than negotiate with them. But Sorrell's people kept on striking. And in October, at Warner Brothers, they had 750 striking workers blocking the gates when Yahtzee's men tried to get in. A violent confrontation followed. Some of the CSU guys overturned a few of the Yahtzee guys' cars. The Burbank police stepped in and started beating the CSU strikers and spraying them with fire hoses. Sorrell spent a night in jail, accused of inciting a riot. Out on the streets next day, he and his men succeeded in basically shutting down production at Warner Brothers. The day after that, the Yahtzee workers organized to physically barrel through the CSU strikers. Another riot ensued. The AFL finally ordered the strike settled by giving the CSU decorators what they wanted. But this was a short-lived victory, and Herb Sorrell lost the public relations battle. He spent time in prison on charges related to the riots. And even worse, by 1946, he had been successfully branded as a communist, which he insisted he was not, although he acknowledged that the CSU had accepted the support of the Communist Party. That acknowledgement was the kiss of death for the CSU. 
In October of 1946, the Screen Actors Guild, led by Ronald Reagan, chose to ignore another CSU strike. The actors crossed the picket lines and went to work, effectively emasculating Sorrell through photo op. Meanwhile, over at the Screenwriters Guild, there was a faction of conservative writers who believed that their guild had been hopelessly overrun by commies. These writers included Maury Riskind, who wrote a number of Marx Brothers movies and My Man Godfrey, and James Kevin McGinnis, a New Yorker columnist whose story formed the basis of A Night at the Opera, and John Lee Mahan, who had written many of Gene Harlow's hits, and Rupert Hughes, the uncle of Howard Hughes, who was in his mid-70s and had already been a newspaper reporter, a Spanish-American war hero, an antagonistic biographer of George Washington, and a screenwriter and director. And finally, Ayn Rand, whose novel, The Fountainhead, would be made into a movie in the midst of the blacklist. These anti-communist writers sought refuge in the Alliance. At first, neither the rest of Hollywood nor Washington took much notice of the Alliance. Their positions were initially considered to be fairly extreme. But the Alliance kept working, quietly. And their ideas wouldn't seem so extreme for long. In the 1946 congressional elections, Republicans seized a majority for the first time in 16 years, since before the war, since the beginning of the Depression. The national mood was changing. In the summer of 1945, with the war crawling to an end after Hitler's suicide and Germany's surrender, for some Americans, the Soviets had outlived their usefulness. And now it was time to start worrying about communists again. The international communist leadership didn't help matters by reversing the popular front stance. In May 1947, French communist politician Jacques Duclos published a declaration which was rumored to have come from Stalin himself, announcing that it had been a mistake for the party to unite with other progressive groups and essentially establishing it as policy that you were either loyal to Soviet communism or you were its enemy. There were some, including reportedly John Howard Lawson, who were so dedicated to the party that they went along with this total about-face without a missed step. But this was not what most Hollywood communists wanted to hear. They thought that they had spent the last few years working to normalize their beliefs and their ideals into the American mainstream. Most of them didn't want to tear American society down. They wanted to influence it to change for the better, to become more economically equal and less hostily divided along lines of class and race. Not long after, Earl Browder, the American communist leader who had advocated for the Popular Front, was deposed from the party, which was bad news for screenwriters. Browder had supported creative freedom, and now the party threatened to outlaw art for art's sake in favor of art as weapon in the class struggle. In the midst of all this, Albert Maltz wrote an editorial defending a writer's right to write whatever they wanted, and he was subsequently officially censured by the party. This is when many Hollywood commies started to lose faith. Abe Polonsky, who would soon write the John Garfield boxing hit Body and Soul, held a crisis meeting at his home in Beverly Hills, attended by as many as a hundred people who weren't sure how to proceed under the new party rules, or if they even wanted to. But just as communism was losing its appeal for many in Hollywood, the U.S. government was becoming increasingly interested in fingering Hollywood as a hotbed for communism. Polonsky later said that the FBI had men waiting outside his house the night of that meeting, taking down the license plate numbers of the attendees. 
The rhetoric was ramping up on both sides. In the mid-1930s, the party coined the slogan, Communism is 20th century Americanism. But after the war, quickly the term Americanism was being used as the antonym of communism. In February 1946, Stalin gave a much-publicized speech outlining the incompatibilities between capitalism and communism. In March 1946, Winston Churchill came to America, and in a speech given in Fulton, Missouri, he popularized the term Iron Curtain to refer to the divide between the Stalin-controlled Eastern Europe and the West. Churchill warned Americans that they should be afraid of what was happening behind that curtain. And this is more or less the unofficial start to the Cold War. And over the next couple of years, many Americans would become increasingly certain that war with the Soviet Union was imminent and inevitable. In this climate, the idea was in the air that communists were more loyal to Mother Russia than to the U.S., even if they were natural-born Americans. Not unlike the notion held by some today that all Muslims are potentially a threat to American security— And thus it was presumed that when it came down to it, there was nothing to stop an American communist from lying, spying, and in any way imaginable, aiding and abetting the enemy. In July 1947, President Truman signed a National Security Act, which amongst other things, created a Secretary of Defense, a sign that the government was preparing for war. Within two months, the first subpoenas from the House Un-American Activities Committee started arriving in Hollywood. The purpose of the hearings that would follow the subpoenas, which we'll get into next week, was not really to identify who was or who was not communist. The FBI already had lists of names of party members. The purpose was to identify who would, and who would not, conform to the new expectations of what it meant to be American. This is why people whose ties to the party were tangential at best were also blacklisted. Americanism never before meant restraint from criticizing the government, but now it did. It never before mandated that people rat out their friends in order to save themselves, but now it did. Over the next 10 years, somewhere between dozens and hundreds of writers, directors, stars, and other Hollywood workers were fired or unable to find work due to allegations that they were or had once been a Communist Party member or more often that they had been associated with any organization that had been branded a communist front group, which many organizations with any sort of liberal, charitable, and or civil rights-oriented mission were branded, particularly those that had been created in the name of anti-racism or anti-fascism before or during World War II. Some people who were accused of being communists really were or had been members of the party. A few of those people were dedicated activists who wanted to change the American government and social system. Many weren't. There were people who were blacklisted because they had attended one or two Marxist study meetings to see for themselves what they were like, or to impress a girl. There were people who found it impossible to get work because their name was the same or similar to the name of a different person who was registered with the party. There were a lot of stories of people who registered with the party during the war, but had become disillusioned with it long before Communist Party membership became a fireable offense. At least one person, actress Lee Grant, was blacklisted for criticizing the blacklist, in her case not in an overtly public forum, but in a speech made at a friend's funeral. Wives of those who were blacklisted also found it impossible to work on their own. But maybe that was just because they were women, not to mention wives. Over the rest of this season, we will tell the stories of some of those people. 
We'll also talk about the lives and careers of some members of the Hollywood right, who believe so strongly in the imminent threat of communism that they encourage the blacklisting of colleagues and peers. We'll talk about stars in exile and writers hiding behind assumed names. We'll talk about movies made by both those that were blacklisted and those that named names, which reflect or attempt to deal with the impossible but often unspoken political situation that underlined Hollywood's 1950s. And we'll talk about how and why the blacklist finally fell apart and what all of the above had to do with the fall of the classical Hollywood studio system and the rise of the brief reign of the young rebels who redefined movies in the late 1960s and early 70s. Join us, won't you, for all that and more. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. This episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth, that's me, with production and research assistance from Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our audio editor is Henry Malofsky, and our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. This season has been in the works since last spring, as many of you have gathered through various hints I've dropped, but it was also requested by many of our listeners since we created our forum last summer, including usernames Blythe Scott, Bacall, Kevin Dillon, Connor F. Burns, Chris Warland, Sean Witzke, Partner, Hayhawk, and Magdalene Lives. If you'd like to suggest something on our forum or start a conversation about an episode, you can find it at youmustrememberthispodcast.com. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe to it on iTunes or the podcatcher of your choice. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod. And we have new ways for you to follow the show. We now have a Facebook page. Please like it at Facebook.com slash YouMustRememberThisPodcast. And we now have an Instagram. Follow You Must Remember This for classic film images, previews of what we're working on, and much more. Join us next week for another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Good night. Come inside, come inside, I gotta find a way out. Come